I'm very excited. Today we are launching, relaunching our series on Exodus. If you've been with us for a little while, uh, in late fall we stopped the book of Exodus. We started teaching on a handful of other things. And now we come back, open up your Bibles, Exodus chapter 20. And Exodus chapter 20 begins the Ten Commandments. Uh, a little bit about myself in the year 2000, I moved to Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And I grew up in metro suburban Detroit, uh, which is honestly basically identical to Bartlett. And uh, so going to Cape Girardeau, Missouri was a culture shock to say the least. Um, to them, at least, I dressed strange at the time. I had earrings, and uh, this lady comes up to me my first week there, and she says, I was on staff at this church, and, and she says, we're so happy to have you. And get little earrings, too. And I was like, what? <laughs> I had big curly afro when I had hair. It was bleach blonde. I looked really good. Anyways, um, <laughs> I spoke at a pace. Like, my default pace was easily 2x like their normal fast pace, right? And uh, so I also preached, I think, even faster than I spoke. So after my first sermon, the guy I lived with, he comes up to me and he says, Michael, I'm sure that was a great sermon. But I couldn't understand a word you said. You talk so fast. <laughs> Touche. Uh, what I did not expect also that there was this underbelly of hard drugs there. So um, right outside of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, was Sykeston, Missouri, which at the time was the meth capital of the United States. And so that was like this weird underbelly, and I didn't realize I was, I was interfacing with the results of this. And um, so I, there's this guy, his name's Larry. He had a loose connection to the church. So I kind of liked Larry, and Larry was always up. Always. Two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning. It didn't matter. Larry's always up. So I'm a night owl, and uh, so I show up late at night at Larry's garage. Larry's up. Go figure. I say, Larry, how about we take your boat, and we go on the Mississippi, and we go fish or something? And he goes, sure. Sounds great. So we get on the boat, and we're out. It's about two, three in the morning now, and he's like, time to go in. And, and as we're going back to the dock, there are uh, police sirens out. Like, there's police cars and uh, lights and all this stuff, and, and he freaks out. And he's just like scrambling and putting stuff away, and he looks at me dead serious, and he goes, Michael, if they ask if there are guns in this boat, you tell them no. Do you hear me? <laughs> And I'm like, well, I know there's guns in the boat because there's guns everywhere in Missouri. I'm like, the kids have guns, the kids have knives, people are blown. It was just such a weird, weird culture. And I was like, duly noted. So we get back to the dock. Lo and behold, they weren't even there for us. They were there for somebody else. You never seen anybody get in their truck faster than Larry in that moment. So um, I had the joy of watching Larry begin to come to faith in Jesus in his 40s. And now Larry was one of those guys who um, he kind of had an opinion on everything always, and it was very strong, right? And so it was really entertaining to watch this very opinionated, very colorful man um, deal with the Word of God. And then the Word of God would gently, or sometimes not so gently, inform him your ideas about this subject or that subject are actually wrong. And then to watch him just kind of unravel as the word of God dismantled his brain and put him back, to be, put him back together um, in the image of Jesus. It was really just a cool process to begin to watch. And what I did not expect was that as I watched him go through that, that the Lord would be putting me through that exact same process. 
Now, I grew up in a Christian home, but um, it was amazing to me. When I was in college, I started teaching the Bible and theology to high school students and college students. And, and every time I would prepare a message to teach, like my ideas would need to change because the word of God would point me in this direction. But I came to the table with a whole bunch of weird, wrong ideas about God. Now, don't get me wrong, I had the gospel straight, but there were all of these things around it that just weren't accurate. Um, I have a, we have a, a preaching team that works together every single week, and I am amazed at the men around this team, and, and we just have a blast together, but I learn something every single week. I mean, I get up and preach to you, and I'm sharing with you the result of, of the process of multiple, sometimes weeks or months. And then over this last week, we're all swapping notes. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that. Or I had a wrong idea here. I have to shift this. And, and I'm telling you, the word of God is never, ever done with us, ever. It is constantly changing our minds and our hearts and our lives. And the person bored with the word has believed the lie that you have nowhere else to go, right? I mean, trust me, you still have room for the Holy Spirit to transform you. Now, I think when we come to Exodus chapter 20, here's what we're finding. We're finding a group of people, the Israelites, who are literally getting to know Yahweh for the very first time. I mean, maybe there's traces of folklore and some of their uh, um, storytelling and oral tradition from Abraham 400 years back, but they are really fundamentally getting to know him. And I want you to, when you think about Exodus 20, I want you to go back with me to that time when you first started getting to know Jesus. When you, maybe you were searching, you hadn't trusted in Christ yet, but you were reading the Bible, you were going to Bible studies. Remember when everything was new? You remember when you had like all of these ideas and then you'd look at the word of God and they'd be like, that's adorable. This is true, right? Remember that season? That is what it's like for the Israelites in this time. Now, some of you, you had some terrible ideas and they did not die easy, did they? Like you had to wrestle with the Lord because you're like, no, I am holding on to this idea. And then eventually, I mean, the word of God and Jesus, they kind of always tend to win. Uh, the gods of the ancient Near East are cataclysmically different than Yahweh. I mean, it's not even, you can't even compare the two. So Israel, um, they are in for an unbelievable culture shock. They are in for a dismantling of epic proportions. And they are not going to go down easy. In fact, you, re, you will learn an entire generation of them end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their belligerence. And my hope is, as we even look at this oh-so-familiar Ten Commandments, that we wouldn't just be like, yep, no, I'm got it, good, done, I'm awesome, nailed them, but that God would reveal something really, really wonderful to you. He'd reveal the depth of his character and who he is more. He'd reveal your heart, maybe even some idols that you have brewing in your heart. Uh, maybe he'd reveal by his spirit or his word, like places in your life that are not aligned to the word of God, and he would give you the really the courage and the power through his spirit to face those things head on and deal with them. Um, my prayer is that over the next 10 weeks, as we look at each one of these 10 commandments, that truly you would be blessed by it. Now, before we jump in, um, I have to take a, t- a few minutes with you, and we have to do a little bit of training on the difference between laws given in the Old Testament and laws given in the New Testament. So if you've got pen, paper, phone, notes, um, we're going to go after this, by the way. I think probably to some degree, almost every single week of the Ten Commandments, um, because so many Christians get this completely wrong. And when you get this wrong, it leads to terrible ideas, a false gospel, and very real oppression for anybody that you might oversee or influence. 
So there's a lot at stake in not getting what I'm about to teach you and train you on right now very right. Okay, here we go. Uh, I have to start at the most 101 level because there are people here in this room or watching that are all over the place. So we're going to go from 101 to clarity and deep. Here we go. Here's the first thing I want you to just know when you open up your Bible, the Old Testament, that's the first part. It was written, these are books written before Jesus's birth. Right now, FYI, some of you just had your brains blown out. You're like, what? That's what the old, oh my goodness. So there are books, and all the books that you have in the Bible, they're written before Jesus' birth. Now the Old Testament tells a story. And it tells the story of the birth of the nation of Israel. That's the 98% of the book of the, of the Old Testament is about the birth and the evolution of the nation of Israel. Now God, Yahweh, had an agreement, a contract with this nation. You think of it like a constitution. It was a set of laws. In fact, they had 613 of them that regulated the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. It was called a covenant. Now, when you think of the covenant uh, that God made with Israel, Christians today, we call it the old covenant. But to them, was it old? No, it was actually just their covenant. So they would call it the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law because Moses was the person who, in behalf of God, gave it to the people. Now, what I'm about to tell you, it's very important. If you've never heard this, you've got to put it in your theological arsenal because it is going to predetermine how you read and interpret the Old Testament, whether you're going to do it poorly or excellently. The laws given by God in the Old Testament, in the law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, were for the nation of Israel in a particular context that is not today. Now, you have a million questions. I'm, I'm going to get to them in a minute. Well, not all million, but maybe the top three, okay? When you take an Old Covenant, Old Testament law, and you pull it out of that context and you try to apply it to a new covenant or this context, you have immediately made an error. Now we're going to unpack this and I'm going to help you understand some nuance. So I want to talk about the purpose of this old covenant or this old law or Mosaic law. Four big purposes. There are many more, but these are the biggies. Number one, this set of laws, this covenant, this agreement between God and the nation of Israel was given to reveal... God, his nature, his character, his values. So when you see a law, that law is a reflection of the value and the character of the lawgiver. So every law was a clue into the values and the character of who God was. Number two, and this might be a little surprising, but the purpose of this was to establish a temporary nation with specific laws. That would be the nation of Israel. Here's the purpose for this. The nation of Israel would be an incubator for the Messiah. The nation of Israel would be the one to receive the word of God and the foundations of the gospel and the gospel itself. And, and then out of this nation would come the Messiah. And so all of this is building up to a point, which is Jesus. But the, God established this nation to be an incubator ultimately for the Messiah. Uh, he gave the old covenant, the old law, the Mosaic covenant to reveal sin. Many of them didn't know what sin was. So God gave a law and they were like, oh, I've been doing that my whole life. I didn't know that was wrong. And then when they got the, the law, they were like, why do I keep breaking the law? And, and I know it's wrong. So it, it didn't just tell them what was sin. It revealed their own, their own sinful hearts and inclinations. 
And then lastly, but not least, it revealed to them the only remedy for sin, which would be the shedding of blood. And throughout the course of the Old Testament, as it culminates to Jesus, um, these categories would get clearer and clearer as God progressively revealed himself. So some big things about the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Number one, it is good. It is good because it came from God. It is good because it reveals who God is. It's good because God made it. Number two, it was temporary. In fact, the Mosaic Covenant had an expiration date built into it. The books of Ezekiel and Isaiah actually talk about the days when there will be a new covenant and the old covenant would fade away. The book of Hebrews talks about it becoming obsolete. That this whole system of laws made for this nation, that there would be a time and space in history where it would literally expire. And that was with the coming, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. When the Messiah came, this would be the expiration date for the old law. So when Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he was inaugurating a new covenant, a new constitution, a new agreement. But this old covenant was not made to be permanent forever. It was made to be temporary until the Messiah came. And lastly, it was authoritative. Whatever it said, you did, period, until there was a new covenant or a new law or a new constitution or a new agreement that God would give to his people. Now let's move to the New Testament. So let's just define the word testament because sometimes people get New Testament, New Covenant mixed up a little bit. Uh, New Testament, very simply, are books written shortly after Jesus' resurrection during the apostles' lifetime. The New Testament tells the story of the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, the launching of the church and its expansion. It also tells us the teachings of the new law or the new covenant. So when you read the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Apostle Paul, the teachings of Peter, the teachings of John, when you open up a New Testament, what they are teaching you are the rules of the new law, the new covenant, the stipulations, the guidelines, how things work between God and the people of God. Now, the purpose of this new covenant is fourfold. Number one, it's to reveal the fullness of God in Jesus. Jesus literally is the greatest revelation of God that we have ever had. It is God in the flesh right in front of us. And it is the coming of the Messiah of Jesus, of God in the flesh, that inaugurates this covenant. And so this was given to us to reveal the fullness of who God's character really is. It's also given, number two, to establish not necessarily a physical nation with national boundaries, but a global spiritual people that anybody from any nation could be a part of this thing called the church. Any tribe, any tongue, any language, any nation, anybody around the world, anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ is brought into one spiritual nation, spiritual people. We call it the church. The new covenant, the new law is also given to us to reveal sin because maybe when you came to Christ, you were like, I didn't know that was wrong. Now I do, and now I do. I still break it. I am a sinner. But it's also given, lastly, to reveal the only remedy for sin. It's not just blood, but the only remedy for sin is the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Period. No questions asked. That is foundational to the new covenant. So the new covenant is really good because it's from God. And the new covenant, the new constitution, this new agreement bound up with laws in the New Testament are authoritative so that whatever is said, the expectation 
is that we would live under its authority and obey it. So how does this lead to problems? Let me give you some examples. I want you to imagine you go to a church, and it's what we call a prosperity church or a health and wealth church. And almost every prosperity church, health and wealth church, nay, cult, do the same, same thing. They go to the Old Testament, and they pluck out a law. And this law, what they forget to tell you, is that it's expired. It doesn't apply to you. It applied to Israel under the old covenant before the Messiah came. And they pluck it out, and then they tell you this is for you today. An example. If you lived in Israel under the old covenant, here's one of the promises that God would make. I'm going to summarize a handful of texts here. If you are faithful to me, I will bless you with prosperity. Your nation will grow, and you will be a prosperous, wealthy, successful nation that no country can overtake. True. Why? Because God had a plan for Israel that it would survive and that it would birth ultimately the Messiah. Now, in the new covenant, does it say that anywhere? Everybody said no, please. Actually, it says just the opposite. If you're going to follow me, expect, Jesus says, that there's going to be like difficulty. It's going to be hard. And if they turned on me, they're going to turn on you. And so completely different expectations. But we have these swindlers who feel like they can make money from people. So they subtly pull out the Bible and then they apply it to a context that is not appropriate, which is why when you teach the Old Testament, you need to understand, or when you read the Old Testament, you just need to understand this context so you can be careful. At the same time, is every law that God gave good, holy, and righteous? 100%. 100%. So there's a, another, like, um, I think uh, some people who don't know the theology or the Bible well, they will say something like this to you. You Christians, you're hypocrites. You pick and choose. So do you eat bacon? I'm like, happily. (laughs) And they're like, well, the Bible says you can't eat pig. And I'm like, old covenant, (laughs) read it. No, like, (laughs) but under the old covenant, God had food regulations that were for their good, for their preservation, to set them apart. Good reasons, good things to do it, Right. And they were fine, but those laws have expired. So when Jesus rose from the dead, I imagine this, it's silly, might even be trite, but like, have bacon everybody on me, right? Like, you're not under law, it's really good, try it for the first time. And it's God's gift to all the new covenant people of the world. But like, what you don't understand is that the old covenant, those laws were good, and they were right, and they were for a people for a period of time until the Messiah came, and that covenant has expired, and now we are in a new covenant with new laws and new stipulations. Now, I want to give you an analogy that I've shared with Village Church, I think, a handful of times over the years, but I find it incredibly helpful to understand the difference. I want you to imagine you're in Canada, and of course, Canada represents the old covenant and the old law, of course. So you're, you're in Canada, and what you may not know about Canadian law is that at its core, it's a part of of Western culture, which is primarily influenced by a Judeo-Christian ethic or set of morals. So what you're going to find when you are in Canada is that they're going to have a similar, not identical, but similar set of laws that we do have in the United States. Now, if you kill somebody in Canada, you can be tried by their courts, and they have a whole set of repercussions if you do that within their boundaries. Now, I want you to imagine you're driving And you cross over into America, and now you're in the New Covenant, of course. And now, well, here's what we find. Go figure. The laws aren't that different, but it's a different system of government with different repercussions and a different judicial system. Now, if I murder somebody in America, can I be tried under Canadian law? And the answer, of course, is no. 
because I can only be tried under this law. I've actually moved from one set of laws to another one, but here's the deal. Both of them have the same Judeo-Christian ethic that they were built off of. So of course they're similar. Of course you can't steal. Of course you can't murder in Canada. And of course you have the same things in America, but you have to understand they're different. And when you move from the old covenant to the new covenant, expect that there's going to be similarities, but you have to understand that fundamentally they're different laws. So here's a question that drives people nuts. Are Christians obligated to obey the Ten Commandments? My answer is, yes, no? Okay, no and yes. No in that they are part of the old covenant. And that covenant is expired and we are no, no longer under its jurisdiction. Some people have made, uh, I think, a helpful categorical distinction, just recognizes not biblical between moral, ceremonial, civil laws. Let's say the moral laws are for today, but the ceremonial and civil laws, those were expired. That is not a biblical category. It's a helpful category in identifying different kinds of laws, but the totality of the Old Testament law has expired. Good news, all the Ten Commandments, to some degree, are reiterated in the new law. They do look different. For example, the Sabbath, uh, the Apostle Paul says, let nobody judge you as to Sabbath, basically when you do it, how you do it, and where you do it. Well, under the old law, it was meticulously defined, and if you broke it, you could be killed. Under the new law, there's still an incredibly high value of Sabbath. Jesus teaches on it, and Paul says this, Nobody gets to judge you on how and when you do it. That's kind of a different... So the Sabbath is still to be kept holy, but now we're under a new law with different penalties, with different promises. It's a little bit different. So we can teach on this, A, number one, because the Old Testament law is good. I love teaching on the Old Testament. I love it. I love drawing people back and showing people the beginnings of the origins of, of Jesus and Christianity and the Bible and showing them the birth of the nation of Israel. We teach on it because it's good and it's inspired and it's God's word and the character of God is all over the page. But the Ten Commandments is this special group that, yes, I want to help you understand what it meant in their context, but with every one of them, it has its own unique twist in the New Testament for what it looks like. So this week is no gods before me. Next week is no I and even though these are separate commandments, they um, overlap quite a bit. Now, are you responsible to obey the Ten Commandments? If somebody says, the ones in the law, no. The ones in the new law, absolutely. Do they all happen to be in both? Yes. Thank God, so therefore you don't have to be mad at me. Sound good? All right, Exodus chapter 20. Now that we have these distinctions, now that you are protected from heresy from this point forward, Amen. Uh, Exodus 19 and 20 is God's formal introduction to the people of Israel. They've gotten to know him a little bit. They watch him come in and obliterate through all the plagues, um, the top 10, we'll say, false gods of Egypt, showing that literally the powerful God, the most powerful gods known to the world are no match for him. But now they're going to get to know him a little bit more personally, a little bit more intimately. And why is God doing all of this? Why is he freeing the Israelites? Why is he revealing himself? Well, here's what we know. He's up to something. And by the way, like, whenever you don't know something, you're like, God, why? He's up to something. He's always planning and fulfilling his plans and promises, sometimes in secret in ways we don't know. But here's what God's doing right now in space, time, and history. Exodus 19 and 20, God is establishing the nation of Israel with a specific set of laws that are going to be the foundation of the Mosaic or Old Covenant. 
And that's what he's doing right now. That's what we get to jump into. And what's happening here, I would contend, is one of the most important days in human history because what is being laid here is the very foundation for the Judeo-Christian ethic or moral code that would be the foundation of all of Western culture. Everything that happened in the world that pertains to Western culture begins in this moment, in this day, with this set of laws. It's hugely important. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, the, all the commands that are about to be said, saying, I am the Lord. Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means I am. He says, I am the I am. It's this statement of eternal preexistence. I just am. I am the authority. I'm the eternal one. I am the only one. It's this like really, really dominating thought. Like I am, and without me, nothing else is. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now I want to take a, a moment And I want to draw your attention to one word in this verse. It is the word you. You might be tempted to think the word you is plural. God's talking to the nation or to families. In fact, what God is actually doing in this moment is he is hyper-personalizing every one of these commandments. Uh, Imagine if you were there, everyone else goes away. And it is you and God having a personal conversation. You might be tempted to take these commandments and say, these are good for the nation. Nations should build themselves off of this Judeo ethic. Oh, it's good for the community. It's good for the government. It's, it's good for my kids. It's good for my family. And here's what Yahweh is doing in this moment. He's saying, you and me, this is good for you. What I'm about to tell you, all these words, this is personal. This isn't just good for them or we. This is deeply personal. I will be your God, not Michael, but Yahweh. I will be your personal God. I saved you. By the way, you'd be dead without me, so take your pick. Dead or alive, and I'm your God. Because that's, that's literally what, it, like, hey, remember, like, the Egyptian army, they were going to come, they are going to kill everybody, and then I killed all of them, and, like, I'm the one who saved you. I am now your God, period. And, and this would be a cultural shift of epic proportions for them. So let's just, let's just identify their worldview over the last 400 years as a culture and community. Like jury, jury's out how much of the oral tradition um, from way back in the day of that guy, Abraham, that we heard of, how much of it they believed or knew, etc. cetera. Uh, Egyptian gods were different than Yahweh. Number one, they were tangible. You could see them, you could touch them, you could understand them. You could literally put God in a box, which is hilarious. There were multiple. It's a polytheistic culture. God's everywhere. If you didn't like one God, you'd go get a different God. If you needed something from this God, you'd go to that God. You could make any God you wanted your personal family God. Pharaoh was God. Everybody was God. The sun was God. Anything could be God. Which is why in each of the 10 plagues, God went after their 10 biggest gods. The 10 biggest things that represented were physical manifestations of their gods. He obliterated them and showed Egypt that he was actually in control. Number three, they're powerful. In fact, you could measure the strength of a god by the strength of its army. So it said when two armies would go to battle, the stronger god would win. Well, nobody could beat Egypt, so their, their gods were the most powerful. 
They were understandable. You knew what was expected. It was a contractual relationship. If I do this, then you'll do this. And it's very good. This idea of like real relationship or an intimate relationship or a loving relationship or a father-son relationship or anything of the sorts out the window. That's not even in their categories when it comes to God. Relationship is this not thing you apply to your relationship with God. And then here comes Yahweh. He comes in and he just blows their categories out of the water. Yahweh is intangible. You can't make images of him. He's invisible. He's spirit. Well, how do we believe in a God we can't see? Like, like they don't know what to do with this. This is all just kind of mind-numbing for them. He's singular. And he's not just singular in the sense that God's one. He's singular in his claim that there's actually no others. And then you can probably hear the Israelites saying, well, what about all the power that we saw the magicians and the priests of Pharaoh do? Like, there's some power there. So clearly there's got to be some like divine competition between God and the gods. He's all powerful because in their brain, they didn't have a notion for anything more powerful than Egypt's gods. And he just made a mockery of those. And he's complex. Like you can't literally or metaphorically put God into a box. The moment you think you have your head wrapped around him, he surprises you. And then as you unfold and throughout history and you learn like, oh, he is one, but he's Trinity. One God, three persons. Your brain is blown. And it should not surprise you that the infinite God of the universe is a bit more complex than your brain can handle. His name even, Yahweh, I am. It's almost like offensive. I am, therefore you're not and they're not. Oh, wow. It's like, geez. Now to the very, now to the very first commandment of the 10. Verse 3. You, individual, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally before me is, is in my presence. I don't want to see them. I don't want to smell them literally because they would worship their incense. I don't want them anywhere near your life. I don't want them in this nation. I don't want them in, this, in these districts. I don't want them in any of your tents. I don't want, them, I don't want their practices. I, I don't want anything to do with any of those things. I want them out. My question, why is God so staunch, so adamant that every single thing that even looks like a false God or a practice that resembles it, he wants all of it out? I'll give you maybe a couple reasons. Number one, God knows something the Israelites don't know yet. They're literally are no other gods. Somebody might be like, well, how do you know that? God's like, well, from eternity past, no one showed up. By the way, I created all space, time, and history, and I know everything that happens in the parameters of those things. So, yeah. Hmm. They just don't exist. Now, do you, do you think that this landed well on the Israelites? What do you mean they don't exist? Like, there's only one? No, no, they don't. Okay, then what about the power? Okay. All those are, are demons masquerading. And they're right. There's real power to be found in this world outside of God. Very real power. Except the biblical worldview puts it in its right place. It's not one God competing against another God. There is one God who created the angelic realm and the ones who fell are called demons and they seek to steal and kill and destroy you because you are made in God's image. So yes, there is real power, but it isn't God versus God. It is God watching demons do stupid things, use their power and exploit humanity in the process. So why is God so staunch on this? Here's, here's another reason. 
Because God knows exactly how he has designed the human body, soul, and mind to work together. And it is in worship of one God, Yahweh, according to his word and law. He knows, because he designed it, that when you go in any other direction, it is inevitably going to be your psychological, emotional, physical, and spiritual death. And he loves you. He's not like this weird, demented image of cold-hearted gods who are in it just for the contract, who want to make you their slave. God is actually a deeply, profoundly relational God who loves you. And the reason he says, don't go do this, is purely out of love for you as a son or daughter. So here's what God does. He legislates absolute abstinence of all religions because dabbling them would lead to their destruction. This false God delusion, it is not going to die easy for the Israelites. I want you to hear me. It is their heroine. It is their thing that they, they know it's not good, right? But they are just drawn to it. And many of them will die by it. And, and God keeps summoning them to something better, but it's their heart culture. It's in them. It's in their blood. And God is constantly saying, it's not good for you. I didn't make you for that. That might be easy and tangible and feel good. And the the idea that I'm intangible in spirit, it may be complex and confusing for you, but this is real and true. And I'm going to evidence this by showing you my unbelievable power. I have a lot more to say on this aspect of things. We're going to dig into that next week. I want to jump into our so what and talk about what does this mean? What does it mean for a follower of Jesus? Here's number one. A disciple of Jesus must eradicate pluralism from their life. What is pluralism? Let's define religious pluralism. Very simply, it's the belief in two or more religions as being equally valid or acceptable. You might see this manifested in statements like, um, all, all religions lead to the same God. He's at the top of a mountain, etc. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to actually do something with you that is called the plurality scale. And it is, studies are out that plurality, religious pluralisms, uh, pluralism is rampant in the evangelical church. So there are going to be many of you who are in this room and you profess Jesus as your savior, but you have pluralistic ideas that are resident in you. So we're going to do a little test and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put up a handful of statements. They're going to be numbered between one and 10. 10 is the highest. And I want you in your brain to remember which statement, which number was the highest number that you agreed with. So if you disagree with 10, that's not it. You disagree with eight, that's not it. Maybe six is the highest number that you agree with. I want you to remember that number. Here we go. Number 10 on the plurality scale. Polytheism. I believe in multiple gods. Here's an eight. I know what I believe, but other gods are helpful and real. Here's a six. I believe in one God, but all religions get to him or her or it or they. Here's a four. I know what I believe, but who am I to tell you that your belief is wrong? Here's the three. I believe in one God, but integrate some practices from other religions. Two, I believe in one God, but often live like something else is God. And then here's number one. I believe in one God, and my speech, practice, and evangelism usually 
reflect that. Now, you know those people who are like, I will never give myself a perfect score because only Jesus is perfect. This is not a perfect score. I put the word usually, right? So that some of you who are like, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time and, and like I, I really have gone out of my way to hunt down areas of my life that might not be glorifying to him. And when I see them, I'm pretty quick to get rid of them. Like that's a real thing. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you've grown and you've exercised self-control. Your relationship with God is growing and you might be uh, one. Now, can I go back to two for a moment? Let's look at this. Two says, I believe in one God, but often live like something else is God. And I find with a lot of Christians, actually, this is where they live. They believe your doctrine is right. You could pass a test, but honestly, more times than not, you live as if something else is God. It could be a person, a thing, a job, a a desire, whatever. It could be anything, but your life is obsessed with this thing. And, And here's the problem in number two. Very rarely do you experience conviction. The, the person who moves from two to one is actually, no, they, they're able to experience conviction and then make changes to kind of say, you know what, this is an idol. This, isn't, this is not worship, pure worship of the one true God. And so I, I'm going I'm to actually grow in my conviction. And once I see these things, I'm going I'm to align my life to follow Jesus. And where we want you to be is, go back to number one now. This is where we want you to grow toward. But to be honest with you, some of you might be a six or a four or a three, and some of you might just still be working through this and searching. And here's what I just want to share with you. Keep searching, okay? Because God wants to reveal himself to you. And if the Bible is true, you're eventually going to get to this reality that there is one God There are no others. And if you see something that appears to be a God, it is either an illusion of the human mind or a demon masquerading so that they might steal, kill, and destroy and keep you away from the one true God. So what number two? Remember, we are false God addicts. The human heart is magnetically drawn to false gods. We love them. We love them. My precious. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, the the extended version of that movie is uh, almost four hours long, and the last one is five hours long. Oh, my gosh. We didn't know that when we started. Here's, Here's the frustrating thing about this is you're the last one to know. God knows. Anybody with a little bit of discernment around you, they know. I gotta read you the dumbest verse in the Bible. Not dumb because God's dumb, it's just dumb because it reflects something so stupid. First Kings 3 3. It's one of these verses that you're like, what? King Solomon loved the Lord. Good. Walking in the statutes of David his father. It's like, close your Bible. Can we just stop there? Nope. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. What? Okay, do you ever worship God at the high places? Oh no, you worship false gods at the high places. In fact, you get to the end of Solomon's life and he is worshiping the false god Moloch, who, by the way, is the god that you take your firstborn child to and you put it on a hot altar and you burn it alive and offering to Moloch. Are you kidding me? Let's, can we just read this again? Now, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high Places. Like, I actually wonder in that moment, like, do you realize this is wrong? Like, are you even putting this thing together? 
It was just so normal, this syncretism, this pluralism, this bringing together of different practices. And it's like his heart was like, oh, I love God. And for some reason, he could not in that moment see the absolute contradiction between what he was doing and the law that God had given them. And sometimes we are the last ones to know. But if you ask anybody else watching and observing, they'll tell you, yeah, that is not good at all. Number three, when you fail to obey and fulfill the new covenant, the new law, remember a core reason why God gave us the Ten Commandments. To lead us to a Savior. If you read the Bible and your conclusion is, I'm pretty good and awesome, you're blind to yourself. The Bible, as you read it, is not first and foremost, supposed to make you feel like you're an awesome person. The law is there to show you that there is a problem and it is in your heart. And then it is there right after you see the problem that it's giving you the solution, which is God loves you. He is giving you his son, Jesus, and the shed blood of Christ to forgive your sins. And anyone who places their faith in Christ no longer has condemnation for their sins, but is given forgiveness and the spirit and the people of God, and the word of, I mean, God is so good and so gracious. And so as you read these laws, as we go through the Ten Commandments, like here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to convict you, unless you're quenching him, he's going to convict you of things that are going on in your life. And that is okay. And after the conviction is an offering of repentance that the Lord will invite you to, and a reminder of the shed blood of Christ who has covered every single one of your frailties. Amen on that one? The gods of Egypt could never, ever, ever offer forgiveness. It was tit for tat, trite, economic, this for that. That's all it was. And yet our God is different. He doesn't just forgive us our sins, but calls us into relationship with himself. We're going to celebrate communion in a moment. I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you currently worship any gods or God other than the one true God through faith in Christ? Yahweh revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you've been integrating practices from other religions into your life, have you found that you have pluralistic ideas about faith and religion? Obviously, from the perspective of God, those are not good things if they're there, right? And what I love about our God is that he is not saying with a loud, yelly voice, you are damned. He is inviting you to salvation through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness of your sins. And so I want to I encourage you, if, if you found yourself there, maybe today you're like, I think I need to place my faith in Christ. Maybe today you are realizing that you believe in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And and maybe today you're at this place where you're realizing it's not the accrual of good works that saves you, but the good work of Christ. Maybe that's what's happening in you. And if if today you want to place your faith in Jesus, it is the perfect day to do that. And I want to invite you to do that this morning. Confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing and you will find healing and redemption and the spirit of God and the people of God. If that's the decision you want to make today to trust in Christ, tell somebody you came with, let somebody at the church know, we'd love to come alongside of you, just support you. As we partake of communion, you may have trusted in Christ and, and this is a reminder again, we are idol 
lovers. We are just making them left and right. And the blood of Christ covers you. Give them back. Let the blood of Christ cover you. And be reminded that there is no condemnation. But please don't be so foolish as to persist in them when you realize them and you have eyes to see them. Confess them and repent of them and give God your singular worship and focus. He deserves it. All others will ultimately destroy you. As we partake of communion here, there's some hospitality things I'd like to share with you. Some of you are visiting here for the first time and you don't know what to do in communion and that's totally fine. Here's our simple rule. Um, We invite anybody who is trusted in Christ to despite where you go to church, if you've trusted in Christ to partake with us. Some of you, you have kids in the room and um, you don't totally know what to do with your kids. Should they take it? Um, Mom and dad, if you're okay with it and they have personally trusted in Jesus, uh, I want to invite you to participate um, in communion with your kids here with us this morning. Uh, Lastly, if you've never trusted in Jesus, um, we ask that you not partake Unless today is the day that you want to make Jesus your God and Savior by trusting in him. And if that's something you want to do today, then I want to encourage you, actually, would you partake of communion with us as a declaration of your faith? Under your seats is a communion cup and a wafer. The wafer is on top. If you pull it off, you can access that and then the cup underneath. Um, In a moment, um, we're going to have a time of silence. When the silence is done, I'm going to read some scripture and then we'll partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have a time of silence alone with the Lord.